So my name is Lawrence Brown. I'm uh, the Director of Research Education for the Emergency Medicine Residency Program at the University of Texas at Austin. And this paper addresses a, a clinically important question, uh, which is whether placing trauma patients in the supine position rather than the coma position or recovery position uh, is associated with loss of airway patency. Um, the authors are from the uh, Scandinavian Air Ambulance uh, Organization, uh, or the Norwegian Air Ambulance Foundation, and a Department of Anesthesiology and Critical Care at Sorlundet Hospital uh, in Norway. I won't try to pronounce their names. And it appears in the Scandinavian Journal of Trauma, Resuscitation, and Emergency Medicine. Uh, since Megan is not with us, I'm going to go ahead and briefly describe the methods. Um, they did a systematic review and meta-analysis uh, focusing on papers uh, that addressed trauma patients. However, they were also looking at non-trauma uh, studies, uh, and they included both unconscious patients uh, and patients with uh, reduced level of consciousness. They were looking for papers using the Embase, Cochrane Library, CNAL, and PubMed and Medline databases, as well as the British Nursing Index. And they were looking for papers that reported either mortality or morbidity, such as aspiration or pneumonia or changes in level of consciousness. However, those endpoints were actually not reported uh, in any studies, so they used some secondary measures like hypoxia and hypoventilation, hypercapnia, uh, and some scores and indexes that are used in critical care and sleep medicine studies. Uh, they included papers uh, regardless of study design. They weren't limited to uh, clinical trials, randomized control trials. Two of the authors uh, independently extracted data using a standardized data collection form, and they use uh, what's called a um, I-squared I statistic, which is a measure of heterogeneity uh, of studies, so similarity or dissimilarity uh, of studies to see whether they could combine the results or not. Uh, and they use the grade uh, methodology for uh, the level of evidence. Um, I see that Megan, Dr. Corey, has joined us. So, uh, Megan, if I butchered that, please correct me or fill in anything that you think I omitted. Am I? Uh, can you hear me okay? Absolutely. Oh, great. Okay. Sorry about that. Little technical difficulties. Uh, no, but do you mind if I, I highlight a couple of things? Um, I'm a methodology junkie, so I like to look into the you know, uh, just thinking that maybe some of our listeners are thinking, how, how would I do this research? And what does all this mean? What do all these acronyms mean? Um, so this was a, a systematic review, like Lawrence was saying. It's a, a systematic review. And a systematic review identifies um, a set of completed studies that address a particular research question. And then you take that and you evaluate the results of the studies to arrive at a conclusion about basically a body of research. Um, the difference between just kind of doing a lit review and a systematic review is that you use a well-defined approach um, to identify your relevant studies and then um, 
you display the results of the eligible study or the uh, yeah the eligible studies, and then when you can try to calculate you know estimates of overall results. And those statistical aspects of that systematic review, like calculating you know um, effect size or summary effects and statistical tests of heterogeneity that Lawrence had mentioned, those are called meta-analyses. So uh, they tried to sort of take a, a piece of this and and do a meta-analysis, whereas they use the, the grade criteria, which is grading of recommendations, assessment, development, and evaluations, um, which has an interesting background, just worth mentioning that essentially it's an attempt to address how we can move from research to practice. So just, you know, we have all of this research out there in, in multiple pieces. How do we then take that and move it to practice? And grade is one of the methods of doing that. And there was a working group in, the, in 2000 that was started as kind of an informal group of people who wanted to address the weaknesses of the method of evaluating and grading quality of evidence and uh, strength of recommendation, and developed a series of articles in 2010 uh, in the Journal of Clinical Epidemiology um, that outlined this grade criteria. Um, and interestingly, there is uh, also an article that was in the Academic uh, Emergency Medicine in 2012 that was a, uh, that outlined the national model for developing um, an evidence-based guidelines for pre-hospital care, and they used this grade methodology uh, to determine quality of evidence rating and strength of recommendation. So it's very relevant for um, our field. Um, so that, that was something I just wanted to highlight, uh, that, that, that there's a very specific way uh, that they tried to approach this. My only issue is when they started to, um, to do this, and not to get into the, the results, because it was actually part of the methods. When they started to do this, they started with a research question, of, uh, which is actually on the second page. In the unconscious trauma patient, is the supine position associated with loss of airway patency compared to the lateral position? But then as they started to develop their inclusion criteria and look at their um, you know, participants, participant studies, um, they found there's very few studies on unconscious trauma patients. So what I thought they would do is maybe then say, okay, well, instead of unconscious, maybe we'll look to low GCS trauma patients. But instead, um, they decided to include all patients with a reduced level of consciousness, regardless of cause and patient location, which uh, well, that's fine, except it doesn't that change the research question. It's no longer about unconscious trauma patients. It's about patients who have a reduced level of consciousness regardless of cause. So that was kind of one of my questions. Why didn't they sort of shift the question to begin with? Um, and then they, of course, wanted to use lateral position as the intervention, comparing it to supine position. So their search criteria, that, like Lawrence said, they used these, uh, they searched six different databases, most of which looked you know, pretty familiar to all of us, and uh, only looked at studies designs that used a control or comparison group with no limitations on the publication date or language. Then they use combinations of search terms uh, which are published in a separate uh, paper. Um, and basically the three general criteria were level of consciousness, positioning, uh, and airway compromise, presence or absence of airway compromise. Um, and like Lauren said, it was they wanted to do patient mortality and morbidity, but again, you know, lack of studies reporting those variables, they went to surrogates uh, like hypoxia and work of breathing and things like that. And then um, during the data extraction, uh, they also did a lot of number of checks on their biases, they used, you know, sort of systematic ways, and then also, um, you know, just general ways, you know, having 
a third party come in and, and or a third author come in and, and sort of argue with which which way is are we going to judge this study um, in terms of its relevance to the research question. So I think that that was uh, just something I wanted to contribute there, Lawrence. If you wanted to move toward um, uh, anything else in the methodology or or the results. Uh, thanks, Megan. That was much clearer than than what I did. Um, so yeah, let's uh, move on to Jeff Anderson, who is going to review the results for us. Okay. Well, uh, the results, as as Megan and uh, Lawrence said, there wasn't a direct, you know, there wasn't any studies that measured the question directly. So they were looking at other things. Uh, table one of the article talks about studies that reported uh, supine versus awake versus supine reduced consciousness. And they did find that um, people that had reduced consciousness did uh, have more incidence of apnea and obstructed airway and things like that. But um, the, the, all the studies they did were smaller. They were looking for other things to begin with, you know, obstructive sleep apnea, a lot of more healthy patients. Uh, so uh, the next uh, section they looked at was uh, studies that reported oxygen desaturation. And... Uh, and these are also people that had a obstructive sleep apnea and things like that, and they did find that um, supine, they had more people that had a, a significant desaturation in those groups. And then uh, they were looking; they had another group that they were looking at uh, other outcomes. Uh, again, a lot of sleep apnea. You know, this seems like they relied heavily on sleep research, but overall, it did appear like supine had more incidence of problems than uh, lateral positioning. So I thought that was pretty interesting. They measured some of the studies measured airway resistance. They measured a specific scores like the Strider, Strider score. The, the there's a score here, the RDI, the respiratory Dif disturbance index, that um, measured how many times you were uh, at a period of apnea or hypoapnea or a respiratory effort and arousals per hour. And so there, uh, again, the the basic result was that they found several studies that showed that. Supine uh, was a little bit worse than lateral, but nothing directly on point for trauma patients. So, so that was my uh, concern with this paper that, that both Jeff and May have now mentioned. Paper is a supine position associated with loss of airway patency in unconscious trauma patients, but the data unconscious trauma patients. And I'm, I don't know, frustrated uh, that that would get through. Uh, I think if you take the words unconscious trauma patients out of the title, uh, why that got published that way. I do think they raise a reasonable clinical question, which is by transporting all of these people uh, in the supine position, are we in fact uh, causing airway compromise uh, in trauma patients who might be able to be transported uh, on their side or in the recovery position since we're doing pretty good now at figuring out who who might not need to be immobilized. So I think it's a real clinical question. I just don't feel like we get the answer here. 
Well, I think the immobilization issue is is part of the key to this. How would you have even studied this, say, five years ago or going backward? Uh, how many trauma patients weren't placed supine on a backboard? That was just kind of the, I don't know I don't know how it works in Scandinavia, but I know in the U.S. that's pretty common. So I think it's an interesting question. Maybe now we can get a better answer now that we're not putting so many people on backboards. I agree. I, I would also say I don't think this is purely an EMS uh, pre-hospital care issue. Uh, yeah. The same thing happens in emergency departments every day. People are placed supine uh, because it's easier for us uh, to deal with them in that position. Uh, whether it's the best position for them or not uh, is a different issue. Yeah, and I think the, the results of the studies they, they found uh, did definitely lead that direction that lateral probably is better for a number of reasons. I want to ask you guys a question. If you're, um, since I think Lawrence, you're more familiar with the epidemiological kind of um, methodologies, could, could you explain figure six, which is the um, the uh, heterogeneity, the meta-analysis force plot for heterogeneity. Um, I found that uh, it would be very confusing to someone who's first reading um, research when they're, when they're sure. trying to quantify the level of heterogeneity. Sure, and uh, we actually happen to have a slide of that. So you're right at first glance. These are kind of overwhelming figures. They're called force plots. Um, but in fact, as the reader, this really gives you all of the information uh, at a glance. And so, for example, if you look at the top section there uh, on the slide that's showing, uh, or on figure six for people who are looking at the paper, it lists a whole bunch of studies with some numbers that are summaries of the results. But if you look to the right-hand side, there's this line graph. And the up and down line is a line that says there's no difference in the study groups. Uh, and in this case, the dot, which on the slide is green, if you have it in black and white, it's just the dot in the middle of the horizontal line, is the point estimate or the actual result that was found in that analysis. And then the horizontal line going out either side of it is the 95% confidence interval for that result. So the difference is the dot is what you found in the study. The line is the range of where you think the real dot is out there in the great big world, probably not exactly in the same place as the dot was in your study. If that horizontal line crosses the up and down line, then out there in the great big world, there's probably not any difference uh, between the two study groups. But if that left and right horizontal line is completely to the left of that up and down line, in this case, the supine position is better. If it's completely to the right, it would say that the, I'm sorry, in this case, the lateral position is better. If it was completely to the right, it would be that the supine position was better. So you can look at this and pretty quickly say in all of these analyses, uh, certainly in the adults with sleep apnea, things tend to be on the left side of that up and down line, suggesting that people should be uh, in the recovery position. Same is true if you look at people before and after surgery. 
if you go down to the third section where it's talking about infants and small children, I would look at that very quickly and say, eh, doesn't seem to matter much in that group. Uh, and then the last three or last two studies for stroke patients are both to the left. So it's a very visual way of, of getting a lot of data very quickly. Now, what I will point out is the diamond shape mark is the combination of all of the studies above it. And that's useful except when studies have high levels of heterogeneity, you really shouldn't combine them. And in these cases, uh, if you look, uh, there's a measures of heterogeneity with an I squared of, uh, in the top section, 93%, in the next section, 63%. Anything above 50% uh, is a high enough level of dissimilarity in the studies that you probably shouldn't be combining them. Okay. So, so I wouldn't really be looking much at those diamonds in this case. Uh, but I do think you can look at the visual impact of that and say, yeah, most of the way that they measure it, it's better to be in the recovery position than supine. Um, the only other caveat I will point out here is that those are actually not a whole bunch of different studies. Uh, but in fact, some of them are the same study measuring different things. So that's a little bit misleading, because usually you just have individual studies. Um, but I, I think the meaning is still the same. Thank you. That explains a lot. I'll interject here real quick. We have a couple of comments um, coming in from Paul Masasi, who's in the audience today. Um, back to the uh, results section, his comment was, um, the whole point of the paper to him um, is demonstrated in the first paragraph that quote that says, the practice may be regarded as dogma rather than based on evidence. Getting back to uh, Jeff's point about backwards. Yeah, there's a great line in the discussion. I actually really I, I put a bunch of stars next to this uh, where uh, they, they say many EMS systems world why uh, dictate the use of rigorous spinal immobilization regimes in unconscious trauma patients and they say we view this practice as an unsolved contradiction uh, and that's I, I thought that was um, pretty powerful I think it gets to Lawrence's statement about why are they supine because it's easier for us I mean, I do think that's often true, we, we, and, and we see it even in non-trauma patients. I mean, how often do you see somebody come in who's unresponsive uh, after a seizure or having had a stroke, and hmm, they come in on the inlet stretcher flat on their back? Uh, so I think we can do better at that. How do you guys feel about this? the, the method of this study um, as a model for, for other research questions um, to address that whole getting that evidence basis and developing evidence-based uh, guidelines or recommendations? Jeff? Uh, well, I um, again, I, I kind of like this study just from the, the idea of it and I think we definitely need to be moving forward with research like this. What concerns me about this particular question is we have a lot of uh, sleep medicine studies that are being used to to kind of answer the question and would we be able to replicate that kind of data in the field? You know, I've had a sleep study. We definitely have to carry that kind of gear on the ambulance. 
So could we measure the, the kinds of things that they're measuring in the back of an ambulance to really get a good answer to this question? But I think stuff, you know, answering little pieces like this is really good. You, you have a, a practice that you're doing and you have multiple premises that lead to you doing that practice and if we can analyze the premises individually and maybe change practice. I'm all about getting rid of dogma and changing that with something that's evidence-based. Yeah, this is Lawrence. I also think it is important that we have these kinds of studies. Uh, was just this morning having an email exchange with somebody and emphasizing the importance of not basing practice on single studies. And this is the way you combine information from many different studies to get an overall question. So, you know, th this is the way that's done in, in all branches of medicine. Um, the difficulty is in finding the original studies on which to base the meta-analysis, and that's the problem these people had as well. You know, we had a great clinical question that could be answered by a meta-analysis, but only if we have the clinical studies to answer it, and in yeah. this case, they weren't there. Two more comments here, um, if you guys don't mind me jumping in. Um, we have one more from Paul Masafi who comments, stretchers aren't ergonomically appropriate for securing people in a lateral position. So let's build different stretchers. <laughs> An engineering problem to solve. Um, another comment from Keith Minowski, who is tuning in with his uh, paramedic class, so glad to have them joining us again. Um, their comment is, it is hard not to put value on these results given the study design and the clear inference that supine positions have a higher propensity for airway compromise. Shouldn't this interpretation be extrapolated to pre-hospital care? How do you envision these findings to inform EMS practice nationwide? I missed part of that question. So did I. Sorry, guys. Is my audio not that great? Now it is. It's better. Can you read it? I'll read it again. Sorry, sorry, everyone. The comment is, it is hard not to put value on these results given the study design and the clear inference that supine position has a higher propensity for airway compromise. Shouldn't this interpretation be extrapolated to pre-hospital care? How do you envision these findings to inform EMS practice nationwide? For me, it just it, it, it reinforces something we should have already been doing. Now, taking the, taking the question of spinal immobilization out of it, but just overall putting people in the lateral position, we've been teaching that for years as an option. It's always been the case. It's just we haven't been doing it. And so I think you know this just gives a little more evidence to something we probably should have been doing for a lot of patients already. Well, that's a, it's a great question because... Um, you know, here we have this, you know, essentially another publication, right? It's a publication about publications. But, again, where do we take it to recommendation? So how does this then get transferred to recommendation? I mean, as some, in some ways we can use the Heart Association and, you know, others as, as um, you know, a way to say, well, this, this contributes to the decision to recommend this somewhere, but but how does it go? You know, where are the recommendations for things that are not heart association related? You know, they're not ILCOR related um, things like this. I mean, this actually could be, you know, lumped in with airway management, but, but you know, which body is going to make that sort of national recommendation? Look, I think it's 
reasonable to take these data and say in the non-trauma patient, uh, it makes sense to transport them in the lateral position, uh, assuming that that doesn't interfere with your ability to care uh, for other things that are going on with the patient. Um, but that's not different than what we've been teaching forever. We just haven't been really doing it that well uh, forever. In the trauma patient, I think the question is still out there, uh, well, but does not immobilizing them and rolling them on their side create some risk uh, for their spinal injury? Now, interestingly, these same authors in the same journal have published another systematic review and meta-analysis of that question. Uh, mm. And surprise, surprise, they can't find any studies that answer that either. Um, and so they use unrelated studies to say, well, there's no evidence that turning an injured patient on their side causes injury, so it must be okay. I think that's a stretch. Um, but again, certainly in the person who um, you are not immobilizing otherwise, whether it's because they're non-trauma or they're a trauma patient and your system uh, and processes allow you to figure out uh, whether or not they should be immobilized, I think a lateral position makes sense. Yeah, and you know, getting back to that question that the other person asked about the gurney is that, that I've, I've been thinking ever since um, that question, you know, our, our gurneys can do many things, but do you know of a gurney that actually has the ability for the mattress or the, the cot part of it to uh, turn laterally instead of just, you know, go into a chair position or go into a, a low fowler's, high fowler's position? No, there's your opportunity to get rich. Yeah, it's kind of like wheels on luggage. What took us so long to put wheels on luggage? Oh boy, I just I just um, aged myself there. <laughs> yes. Well, cots that I've used in the past are are uh, you know they're higher on the sides and then you know lower in the middle, so that would help facilitate someone being in that position. Yeah. Another thing with this with this study that I think is is important, you know. I think paramedics especially need to start understanding that not all evidence is the same. So if we're going to use this in a class or in a lecture, having people understand that this isn't rock solid evidence, you know, maybe explaining the grade system or something along those lines. So we, we don't treat every single thing we say like it has equal weight. And I think paramedics need to understand that a lot better. And I think we're doing a better job of teaching that. But you know, when it, whether it comes to the AHA guidelines or any other guideline or, or study that comes out, not, they're not all created equal, so if, if, you know this is a little bitty piece of a little bitty question that uh, may give us an answer, but it's not rock solid by any means, and there's lots of flaws and weaknesses to it. So just take that, you know, as you try to apply it. I think that's one of the things we need to do in EMS going forward. Is just here's here's the evidence, here's the level of evidence, and uh, you know use accordingly. On that same note, uh, Jeff, I have a comment here from Pastor Martin. This paper could not meet the standard for changing policy. We can't hear you again, Nora. Really? Oh, better. If I speak up, can you hear me better? That's better. Okay, I'll just speak really loud. Baxter's comment is this paper could not meet the standard for changing policy using it as, quote, evidence. It could not meet the classification as discussed earlier by Dr. Brown. 
Yeah, that's probably in response to um, you know my question about whether or not you know where to take something uh, like this, and and I wasn't actually suggesting that this alone, but if we did have something that we felt uh, you know met uh, our quality standards that that we felt should change practice, uh, it is difficult to envision you know which arena where does it go to to actually change practice. Another uh, comment here from um, David Ben. He says, the state of Michigan no longer has us using backwards and, quote, immobilizing any of our trauma patients. That does seem to be the direction of things. But, but not immobilizing and transporting supine is still different than not immobilizing. Well, we don't know, might be different than not immobilizing and transporting on their side. So I think we are moving in a direction where we will be able to compare the two, uh, but I don't think we, to my knowledge, those data are not out there uh, yet. So if that person, uh, Nora, can comment, are they still transporting their patients mostly supine, or are they turning them on their side? Uh, forgive my terrible audio, but I'm just going to comment one more time. Um, David Ben says, we can transport in position of comfort. Great. That is great. You know, Alameda County um, EMS Agency puts on, uh, they have a whole page on their uh, spinal motion restriction policies, and that was after the Jim Morrissey and Carl Spohr, their publication in pre-hospital emergency care, and they developed a video, a very helpful video, that, um, you know, describes kind of creative ways that you can immobilize using um, vacuum mattresses, and, et cetera, and, and putting people on their side uh, if they have airway compromise, you know, and I think it's, um, it's time we get, you know, again, evidence and then clinical decision-making um, weighing all of the options. I, I think it's terrific. Another question here from uh, Paul Masasi. Hopefully you guys can hear me say it. Um, Paul asks if you guys could discuss the possibility of publication bias and how to assess it. Mm. So uh, for people who are not uh, aware. Publication bias is the idea that uh, positive studies are more likely to get published than negative studies. So if you compare two things and one of them works better, that's more likely to get published than if you compare two things and there's no difference. Um, and there are uh, varying uh, reports on whether that, uh, well, to what extent that really happens. But that is clearly uh, an issue in a meta-analysis uh, because you're summarizing usually the published literature. And so if there's a bias towards studies that found a difference uh, in terms of them getting published, you'll miss the ones that didn't find a difference. So that is a real problem. There is a mechanism that I am not an expert on. Uh, I've done two of these meta-analyses and have used other people who are experts to help with it, um, but they create what are called funnel plots, and it's a similar visual uh, representation of the data, 
Um, and the idea being that you should find roughly equal uh, amounts of pro and con studies. Uh, maybe not exactly equal, but some of each. And if you find all one way or all the other, uh, the likelihood is there is some bias uh, in the publication of, of results on that topic. Um, but Megan, you're the methodologist. You might know a lot more about that than I do. I actually don't, but I just wrote it down as a little note. Learn more about this. LB mentioned it. <laughs> but, but it is a concern. Yeah. So I had a crazy thought. And this uh, might make people who have their students listening cringe. So you've been warned, Dr. Minoski. Um, you know, they, and what made me think about it were the, the studies, uh, the sleep studies. So if you have sleep apnea, they give you this little machine to take home and put on your face when you go to sleep at night uh, to treat your sleep apnea. And uh, I'm wondering if when we need to uh, transport unconscious people on their backs, whether it's because we're worried about their C-spines or for some other reason, um, if there's a role for that in patient transport, uh, to provide airway support. And that's just a crazy, bad word um, question, but I'd like to get people thinking about that. Might be another wheels on the luggage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the only thing I can think of that might be a problem with that for trauma patients is just, you know, introducing positive pressure into the lungs which we've had to intubate and we do it anyway, but if we didn't. Which devices are you talking about, uh, Lawrence, when you talk about the oh, sleep like app? A CPAP, like a CPAP machine. Uh, look, like I'm not recommending, I'm just raising the question. Yeah, I actually read a study once on CHFers, um, and uh, not the CHFers we think of, the acute decompensated ones that we get in the middle of the night, but just your chronics uh, at home kind of treatment and the use of regular nasal sleep apnea type CPAP while they sleep um, and uh, reducing their incidence of uh, acute decompensated CHF in the long run just by improving cardiac efficiency on a regular basis um, at night, uh, preventing those um, episodes. I think there's. I think you're you're right in something too. There's all these things that are out there that the public uh, use at home, and sometimes we, um, sometimes I look at that and wonder why, you know, we don't look at these same things in practice. Of course, it's probably easier and cheaper just to lay them on their side. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. With bariatric patients, it may not be easier. Now there we go. All right, well, are there any more questions lurking out there, Nora? Nope, looks like that's it. All right, Jeff, was there any last thing you wanted to add? Or oh, thanks for having me, and I appreciate all you've taught me today. Oh, well, thank you, and, and thanks for participating. And uh, Megan, what about you? Any other comments? No, this was great. Thank you. Great. I will um, say thank you to everybody and turn it back over to Nora to close this down. All right, thank you so much, Lauren, Megan, and Jeff for being our panelists today. Um, that date is incorrect, obviously. Today is the 9th. Uh, our next PCRF Journal Club is Monday, December 14th, 
second Monday of the month as usual. Um, and we hope to see you then. Thank you so much for joining us and apologies for the technical hiccups um, along the way, but always good to have you all. Take care.